Steve. What's up, dude? A Healthy Dose is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Kraus, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxian Partners. Funny talks, but it don't sing and dance and it don't walk. The guys talk to leaders from various aspects of healthcare and cover personal stories, entrepreneurship, investing, and have a few laughs, many at each other's expense. Well, we both enjoy the art of the conversation. We both have faces that are made for radio. So the- At least eyebrows for me. <laughs> Double chin for me. <laughs> we get a lot of ones right, but we get a lot of ones wrong. One of the most interesting conversations I've had in a long time. If you pardon me, I'd like to say I will say one of the areas I've been most interested in what we do at Oxian has been capitated risk and primarily capitated risk in primary care and the shifting role that primary care plays in a value-based environment. And you know, because you give me crap about liking service businesses versus tech businesses, and you and I go back and forth on it. But in that world, Rashika, Fernandopoul, and Iora are without question trailblazers. He is absolutely a thought leader and a total and complete disruptor. And so I think for, yeah. for me in particular, probably having you know first learned about Rashika and Atul Gawande's famous article in The New Yorker, and then to have gotten a chance to work with him and invest with him, and then to get a chance to have him talk today. It's definitely you know, one of the reasons why this podcast has been so much fun for yeah, me. Yeah, it was a great conversation. I, you know, Rashika is, as the listeners will hear, he's, he's got a huge brain, but he's also got a huge heart. And he's, at the same time, a real disruptor. I mean, if you think about it, medicine for you know, 100 plus years was practicing one way, which is doctors saw a patient, did a procedure and got paid for seeing that patient or doing that procedure. And Ashika came along and said, whoa, whoa, in 2004, we got to like tear this up and start with a blank yeah, sheet of paper. Not incremental changes. No, not like redesigning small, yeah, the entire yeah. way that your experience with your doctor takes place and the way that the doctor takes care of you. Yeah. I mean, it is a fundamentally, radically yeah. game-changing yeah. company, Iora. And, it, and it's interesting. I think it's tough to compete with Rashika, but Dave Fielding, who's their CFO, who you know from business school right. and, and obviously, obviously know well also, is I think for many years, Rashika's model was attractive from its clinical outcomes, but it wasn't a model that had necessarily figured People out how to operate. People wondered if you could make money at it. Yeah, whether yeah. it could operate in a risk-based environment. And so Dave came in, and I think he's had an enormous effect. So it was nice to get you know, the CEO and the clinical mind and the inspirational leader, but also the guy, great healthcare delivered when you're losing money is not a long-term sustainable model. And so Dave's played an instrumental yeah. role in that. We try to have insights from entrepreneurs that our listeners can take away. And then we also try to make them about a subject that matters to most people, which is healthcare. And I think the thing about Rashika from an entrepreneur's perspective is the persistence in building this, right? He started this in 2004, it's yeah. now 2017. It's taken a lot of time, and there's a lot of lessons that he shares in this podcast about how to yeah. truly fundamentally change the delivery of care. Yeah. And then I think we're going to talk about a subject that everyone experiences, which is going to see a doctor who's your primary care provider. And hopefully it'll, it'll be interesting to see how Rashika is totally reinventing and reimagining yeah. that experience. Hope you enjoy the podcast. We are here with... Rashika Fernandopoul and Dave Feeling, CEO and CFO of Iora Health, which is a business that I think a lot of people have watched with great fanfare over its time and evolution. For me, it's a particularly interesting interview because it was 
reading Atul Gawande's article in The New Yorker about, at that point in time, D2 Hawkeye, which went on to be Verisk, and your work, Rashika, in Atlantic City that opened my eyes to what population health really was going to be about and how we as a system could, could change. So I'm thrilled to welcome you both here. I know Steve is as well. I do want to start particularly with Rashika and talk a little bit about how you became a doc. You're an entrepreneur and a doc. So if I could take you back to your years in high school and before going to medical school, did you see yourself more as an entrepreneur or more as a doctor? So I've always been interested in probably not entrepreneurship, but in, in system issues. So in, in college, I was a government major and I studied ethnic conflicts. So my thesis was uh, going to Northern Ireland and Sri Lanka, and, and, and you realize these are all system things, right? But I was also interested in medicine. My dad was a doc, I've always been around medicine. Mm-hmm. My career has been sort of going in and out of practicing medicine, which I still do, and working on, I think, the system issues. And I didn't start off being an entrepreneur, unlike you know, most people in business. I started out saying, how do we fix this system? When did you realize that? Did you realize that? in medical school that you thought the system was broken? Yeah, so it really was getting exposed to it as a medical student. So at least a typical curriculum, two years, you sit in a classroom, you learn all the vocabulary, and you dissect people, and and then you end up, your third year, you get thrown into the hospital wards. And now you're a part of the team, and you just realize this was back in the early 90s. And you're here in Boston, right? Yeah, here in Boston. So early 90s here in Boston with at Harvard Medical School. And people were glum, right? This is when Clinton health reforms were failing, managed care was sweeping in, the old good old days of being a doctor where we can do whatever we wanted to and no one really <laughs> paid any attention were sort of gone. Uh, it wasn't clear at all what the vision of what the next thing was, right? There's just, there's people beating on me for various things and people were glum. And my realization having thought about systems, this is a system problem. We created this stupid system, we could fix it. So instead of just complaining about it, why don't we fix it? And so ended up trying to go to the business school. So I said, I want to take a leave of absence. I want to go to get an MBA because it seemed like that's the right set of tools. And what I was told at the time by the folks in medicine was not just this is bad, uh, this is evil. Look, Simon, really? you could be one of us. Literally, they had conversations even, with you even, No, literally, if you go there, you're not going to come back because you can be one of us or one of them, and you need to decide. Exactly. There's so much animosity between the business powers and the clinical yeah, powers well, in healthcare. You know, what's really funny is now at Harvard Medical School, McKinsey's, like, you know, recruiting. And, <laughs> and half the kids seem to be getting MBAs. But at the time, again, this was uh, late 80s, yeah. early 90s. Th- these two worlds were completely separate. And for the medical point of view, you know, when people, every now and then someone would, uh, Jack Rowe, I remember at the time, went to become CEO of Aetna, and he went to the dark side, was sort of the way the scripting was. So, so what I ended up doing, of course, is I ended up going to the Kennedy School, which is a master's in public policy, which was acceptable, mm-hmm. uh, but just right across the river from the business school, and you could just cross-register, you could just walk across the river and... Do so you hid your the, MBA. I hid my MBA. <laughs> so I have a, a secret stealth MBA. And then, you know, ended up going and doing a little bit of clinical training and then going and working for a place called the Advisory Board Company, which I know sure. you're very familiar with. Was David Bradley the CEO? David then? Bradley was the uh, Did you actually practice medicine at all or did you go straight to the Advisory Board after med school? No, so I went to med school and then I uh, thought I was going to be a surgeon. And so I went and signed up for a seven-year categorical general surgery program. A year into that, decided I didn't really want to be a surgeon that badly, and I tried to find 
somewhere where I could go. And I remember um, stumbling upon, really, the advisory board, mm -hmm. the place that, as at the time, there were virtually no doctors doing this work, right? I think now, the day when lots of doctors are involved in business and policy, back then, this was an incredibly yeah. rare thing. So they were like, sure, come on over. And I worked for David Bradley, ran one of their programs, ended up actually, after a year, realizing I wanted to go back and finish my clinical training. So I left the advisory board, came back to Boston, and Mass General did my residency. So just, uh, and we try not to play the name game here because a lot of people aren't necessarily aware, but your peer group there included Frank Williams. Yes. Who was the CEO of Evelyn. Jeff Butler. Yes. Who's the CEO of Privia. Martin Coulter. Yes. Who's the CEO of Patients Like Me. Yeah, no, it was a really interesting time. It was a, still a private company back then. There were about 500 of us. We were on one location, the Watergate building. So overlooking the Potomac. And I think lots of people sort of came through there. And it was a really interesting time. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, a lot of us have stayed in touch. You know, I had yeah. breakfast with Jeff Butler uh, last Saturday. Yeah. You know, and I think it's been very helpful as we move through our careers. Why did you go back to residency? You know, it's a, it's a good question. It certainly wasn't for the money. <laughs> so <laughs> I remember when I told them I was going to leave in typical business fashion, they said, oh, well, we can offer you more money. I said, if it was for the money, you idiot, I would need my head examined, right? So it's because I really want to be a doctor. I really want to take care of patients. And I also want to fix the system. And I sort of had felt that having both those perspectives, being able to, you know, get your hands dirty, and it, it still works now. I still see patients in IR practices. It gives you a sort of uh, perspective that you couldn't get if you weren't sort of getting dirty. And at root, if you want to fix healthcare, you have to change how actual patients get actual care, right? And you can fix all this ethos stuff yeah. and you have to do that, but it has to come down to changing how actual people get actual care. And if you don't do that, it's a waste of time. So that's what I wanted to do. So I needed to go back. I also felt like the longer I waited, the less likely I, it would happen. It gets hard to go back and stay up all night and all the other sort of hazing stuff that goes on as a resident. So but that's why I, I was still single at the time I can do this, so I ended up going back and finishing. So I think you are broadly credited with the concept of creating kind of care coordination teams. Your clinical teams would get yeah. together in the morning and map out what each person was going to do to manage both people who are coming into the practice, but also all the steps of follow-up. What caused that idea to really stick with you? So I think it was really rethinking what our job is. So I think, unfortunately, if you spend too much time paying attention to what you get paid for, you know, what you get paid for as a doctor, you get paid for doctor sick visits, that's all you yeah. get paid for. Yeah. And so if that, you think that's your job, that's what you do. You walk in the morning, you have 38 patients booked in your schedule, you see one patient for seven minutes, you document your code, you bill, you go to the next patient. And that was very unsatisfying. It seemed very clear to me that's not the job that anyone wants us to do, really. The job that people want us to do, the thing that creates value is actually that I have a population of people, they're my responsibility. How do I improve their health, keep them out of trouble? And so if you said that's your job, then very quickly realize that I, the doctor, have an important role to play in it. My job is to diagnose and come up with treatment. But, but then the other part is how do patients execute on it? And right now in the current system, what is very clear is we don't, don't do that. We tell people, you should eat less, exercise more, take your medicines, good luck, sucker, I'll see you in three months. Yeah. They come back in three months, you bad, bad patient. You didn't eat less, exercise more. You know, and, and that's when you say we need a team. Right. We need a group of people to do this. And I think maybe it came from spending time uh, abroad. So I work in the Dominican Republic in a clinic, work in Malaysia. And I think in other countries where they don't have all these doctors running around, they sort of have to start working with other people. And mm -hmm. they don't have nurses either. So I think the insight was, doesn't it be doctors, be nurses? The only thing you need 
to be able to do this sort of care coordination, helping patients execute, is actually empathy. Mm-hmm. Being able to connect to another human being, right? So if you just um, find that empathy, and then they can be part of the team. So yes, my, as a doctor, I'm going to actually make a plan, then have the team actually execute on and it. And you found yourself in Atlantic City with the Casino Workers Union, right? Which is, I mean, that is pretty close to a dual eligible population, right? Those are polychronic and... Very poor, very sick, tend to be older. There's a shocking number of people who, you know, are 70 and 80 years old, still working, by the way, because no one gave them a 401k or a pension, so they can't afford to retire. These are old, sick, largely non-English speaking, bottom of the house. The issue for a union, obviously, is that they take their negotiated fees and then they have to pay for health care for their members. And so this population that they were responsible for was obviously... I'm assuming chewing up a large, if not almost the entire portion of the budget of the union. And so you really aligned to help them manage that population more effectively. How did you end up in that situation? Really what happened is, the very short version of the story is, you know, I'd been thinking for a long time about how do we change primary care. So I was a primary care doc, went to Mass General and realized that typical practices don't work. And then I happened to, at this Part of my job, I stumbled upon running this interfaculty health policy program at Harvard, which allowed me to have a little time on Harvard's dime to really think about the issue. And I'd spent time working with Don Berwick at IHI, the advisory board, as I mentioned. A lot of times your whole life work comes to one little insight. And the one little insight was, wait a second, we know the system doesn't work. What we're trying to do is tweak it, right? Take existing practices and make them a little better. And the real simple insight is maybe what we ought to do is start over. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't start with what we have. We should start from scratch. And so I did some work at Harvard, thought about this, and tried to engage folks in the healthcare system here in Boston to let me do that. Can you give me one little lab where I can start from scratch and build a practice where I can do things completely differently and not start with what we have? And I went to the Brigham and the Mass General and the BI and Mount Auburn, and they all sort of pat me on the head, and they said some variant of that's really interesting, but, you know... Business is good for us. Our practices are full. We're making money. What's the problem? That's exactly what they said. What's the problem you're trying to solve? And I said, care sucks. Patients hate it. Doctors hate it. It's bankrupting the country. But from their point of view... Practices for making money, what's the problem? They did not feel like this is something they should be addressing. And so now I become an entrepreneur, right? So after trying to work in Washington, working for a consulting company, all this stuff, I said, maybe what I just need to do is just do this. So quit the day job and became an entrepreneur and said, I'm going to start a practice. Married at the time? I was married at the time. I had kids at the time. But really, I just got to do this. And I'm a doctor. I could start a practice. The only thing I can think of, I'll just start a practice. We started a little practice in Arlington, Massachusetts, called Renaissance Health, the rebirth of primary care. I remember this. And said, let's just try this. And started just doing it. And that, having done that for a couple of years, and can talk a lot more about that if you want, that ended up leading eventually to Atlantic City. Uh, been honest, Rashika, you know, Iora was a miss that we had. We have a lot of misses. Gone to be a great company. But I literally remember emailing Rashika at Renaissance Health. That was what, 2004 we started? But through, then before through, Iora started when? I was started in 2009. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. 2009, I think I was emailing your Renaissance yeah. Health uh, <laughs> email address. So you made the jump. Was that like a distinct moment you remember? Because clearly you came from it from a systems perspective, yeah. wanting to change a system. It wasn't like, I want to be an entrepreneur. No. But all of a sudden, flip the switch, you're an entrepreneur. Was that like a holy shit moment for you? No, it was, it was a little bit of a, I've tried every other way to change the system, right? So I got to be an entrepreneur. We tried studying it, which a lot of people study the problem, not going to help. You know, tried changing policy stuff, 
tried you know, being a consultant, uh, and none of them are working. And so maybe the only thing I can do is just, Nike, just do it. Yeah, can I ask, actually, that's great, just do it. What is it? Because I think we've touched on a couple things. You know, patient care, population health, satisfaction, better way for doctors to practice. But what do you think defines it here? So it is building a completely different model of care delivery. So we know that that in the U.S. healthcare, the the usual litany, the experience is awful, the outcomes are awful. By the way, the experience is awful for doctors and patients. The experience, the outcomes are embarrassing, and the cost is obscene and going higher. And the fundamental problem is the production process, right? The how we actually deliver care to actual people was not designed to optimize any of those things. It's optimized to do more stuff to people, right? So, so what we need is to start over building So volume-based is a problem. Yes, big problem. Uh, and there's a lot of things. It's a culture, the IT, the payment, everything is linked in. So let's start over and let's build a new model that's actually two things. It's consumer-centric and value-based. And both of those, not one, but both, right? And really, I think the big problem with US healthcare now, if you boil down to one thing, is it's transactional. Everything the transaction, document code, bill next, right? So it's all dollops of things. Everything's built around RVUs and CPTs and all this other crap. See a patient, I get paid. Yeah, yeah. I do a procedure, I get paid. Do a lab test, I get paid, right? Last I checked, transactions have never healed anyone, right? At root, what we need to do at healthcare is actually heal people. And the thing that heals people is relationships. And so what we need to do is rebuild the system on relationships. Now you can't build relations on top of a transactional system, which is why you have to get rid of the transactional system. So some because of the fundamental trust that's I mean Yeah, because the fundamental You're changing patient behavior, right? If right. This is all about behavior change by both patients and docs. And that is not a transaction. That is a relationship. That's a long term game. We're too focused on short term things. This is a long term game. But uh, yeah, no, we need to change the relationships. We have to get rid of the transactions. So one of the problems, Medicare at the moment talks a good talk about value-based payment. Every one of their APMs, the advanced payment models, are built on fee-for-service. That's right. They're all fee-for-service, CPC, CPC+, Plus, uh, ACOs, uh, MSSP, you know, the alphabet soup. They're all fee-for-service based with some little bonus and some little true-up later much. No, 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 no. If you care about value-based care, get rid of the transactions. One of my favorite quotes is from Michelangelo. They asked him, how do you get the pieta, this beautiful sculpture? And he says, I take a block of stone and I chip away everything that's not the pieta, <laughs> right? So that's what we have to do in healthcare. All the things we do to try and fix healthcare, whether they're medical home criteria, meaningful use, or you know, ACO criteria, they're all like more transactions. They're all incremental improvements to transactions. Yes, or more transactions, even worse, right? So we need to just get rid of all that stuff. So rebuild the system on relationships. Now, when you say that, you have to change everything. You have to find a different payment model. You have to do a different culture. You have to build a different team. You need to have a different IT system, right? You sort of pull on the little string and the whole thing unravels, and then you have to build something else. So Dave Fielding, you've been sitting here, I guess, working with Rashika. You probably get used to him hearing him <laughs> tell this story. You're a rising start Cerberus. You are at Stewart Healthcare, a for-profit organization that thrives in everything that Rashika just described. They like transactions. They, they like transactions. transactions. 
and you see this interesting clinical model that at that point in time was direct primary care, right? Yeah. It was a flat fee yeah. and you got unlimited care. Yeah. Can you give me a sense of what your first two weeks in the job were like? Like as you walked <laughs> into this organization, you're like, this does not look like what we're doing at Stewart Healthcare. Totally, yeah. What's interesting with Stewart and I think a lot of integrated delivery networks is they were trying to move towards value-based care, but they still had a big fee-for-service chassis. And so 40% of their revenue might have been value-based care, but they still had 60% fee-for-service. And so you're kind of in this no man's land where you're one foot on the boat, one foot on the dock. And it's really hard to do for all the reasons that Rashika just said. And so what's amazing with Iora is we've removed all of those shackles. So we don't have the big fixed asset hospital that we have to fill up. Our doctors can just take care of patients the right way. And I think to answer your question, in terms of the first two weeks, what you feel right away, even before it started, is just the extreme focus on culture and the patient and just doing the right thing for the patient, doing the right thing for our team members and everything else will kind of take care of itself. So we never, even still to this day, we don't focus on the financials first. We obviously report our financials internally and all that kind of stuff and keep them visible to folks, but it's not the first thing that we lead with. We assume that the financial model will take care of itself if we're doing the right thing and keeping the patient. That's a big leap. Just when you think about it, if we talk about the macro trend of accountable care organizations and, and value-based care, not being focused on the financials is a really hard thing. I guess it's easier for you guys because you don't have the big fixed asset hospitals. That's the biggest thing. Is that the secret right now in terms of an organization's ability? I mean, as simple as it sounds, is you know these large hospitals that have, are half fee-for-service, half value, or maybe the percentages are very different, they have these massive real estate, well, this we massive real estate debt, right? The dirty little secret, I think, when you see what we've been doing over and over again from Atlantic City, and we've done this now in 35 practices across the country, the way we generate the economics is by huge drops in hospitalization. So on the order of 40 to 50%, 40 to 50% less than a control group or what people did before, right? That's a big number. So if you think the right answer, the way to drive savings in healthcare is to keep 40 50% out of the hospital and you are making money out of filling hospital bed, that's a big problem. Right. Big problem. And this is a fixed cost asset, right? You can't get the money back. The amount of capital <laughs> that you'd have to invest to rework a hospital to keep up with this changing demand and the you know the lower volumes and reworking things so it's more outpatient focused, et cetera, it's a hugely capital intensive. So it's a dire picture you just painted, right? Because one of two things is gonna happen. Either the big real estate, the REITs that are effectively quasi hospitals with these huge fixed assets are going to do what they can to continue to fill their beds, or innovative businesses are gonna find people to stay out of hospitals, and you're gonna have massive disruption in the economic systems of these communities as these hospitals fail to generate revenue because people are keeping them out. So like, how do we get our hands around that? That's where you really change the payment model. And I think that's the hardest challenge in healthcare, probably any industry, trying to figure out how to get paid for not doing something. It's never been it's never been done. And when you look at other capital intensive industries, I, I actually do that. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, really rare. Rare. That's, that's exactly what I do. That's why you've been so successful. You figured it out. Thank God there weren't any VC jokes told here. <laughs> um, when you look at other capital intensive industries, the way that people do that is they create a service contract or something along those lines and start to do a lot of preventative maintenance. That same construct doesn't necessarily yeah. exist in healthcare. So can you create incentives for the patient and for the providers to be doing the right things to avoid those downstream costs? Hey, Rishika, I mean, you're obviously a really highly regarded healthcare executive and entrepreneur. You know, 2004 to 2009, not a lot of people were talking about the value-based movement. So I think one of the best things that we have in having execs like you on our podcast is lessons learned. You know, taking back to that time and some reflections, I mean, you had to convince, 
employees, investors like myself, you know. Not very successful. Sorry about that. I missed that one again. <laughs> uh, but like, what, what are the lessons learned when you, I mean, because this was a real white space, right? It's yeah. not like you were building another EMR, right? Like, what, what, do you, what do you reflect on that you share with entrepreneurs? I often tell people the only skill you need to have is refusal to take no for an answer. Because a lot of people will tell you no, and you just have to figure out either a different person to ask or a different way to ask a question. And you need to be persistent. So again, I started the first practice in 2004. It's 2017 now, right? These things take a while. Everett Rogers, who was a great theorist who wrote a book called Diffusion of Innovation, said when innovations diffuse, he looked, wrote about seed corn during the Depression. The real specific pattern that there are a few people who just are innovators. They're sort of the people who just get it. And then they do it, and then the group called the early adopters, then the late adopters, then the laggards, right? So what you have to do is find the innovators, right? So if you look at who first started signing up for what we did, they're not random people. So. These are employees of yours? No, not employees. These oh. are actually cl- sponsors. Sponsor. Clients, Clients, okay, right? thank you. People are going to pay you, right? Yep. Uh, so our, our first sponsor was Jim Kim. Jim was an MD, PhD from Harvard, a MacArthur Genius Award winner. He was, ran Partners in Health, and he was running the World Bank before he was 52, not a normal guy, <laughs> right? Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, right? Billionaire before he's 40, not a normal guy. Sarah Horowitz, you know, from the freelance unit. Yep. Again, another MacArthur Genius Award winner on the board of the New York Fed before she's 45, not a normal person, right? So the part of it, you've got to go after the wackos, right? Interesting. Um, so your advice to entrepreneurs would be find wackos who will believe in find you. Find the wackos who will believe in you and don't waste your time with the people who don't get never it be or don't, don't see it. it. So you need to, as soon as they don't get it, don't waste your time to convince them because you never will. Find the people who are, who are looking for you, right, who get it, and then work with them, get the track record and the data, and then the next group of people who are a little less visionary, but say, hey, but if it's okay with Jim Kim, I'll do it. That's a good marker. If Sarah Horowitz will do it, if Betsy Gilbertson at the Culinary Fund will do it, then I'll do it. And then you get the next one. And, and we've sort of, part of the story of the last 14 years is sort of just going down that cascade. And how do you end up at Humana? Where's, because... How do you go from wacko to Humana? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting, of the health plans, Humana is maybe the wackos yeah. of the health plans, That's right? right? So, that. so they're really the, the health plan that I think gets that we are not just a health insurance paying claims company. We want to be a health company. We're making a bet on this Medicare Advantage space. And that now, so Humana would never have talked to us if we just walked in with stuff on a a napkin, right? They're not that risk taking. But look, it's okay for the casino workers union. They can come visit a practice in Las Vegas. They can come visit a practice in Hanover. Hmm, this is for real. These guys are for real. Now let's see if we can incubate them and bring them in to work with us, right? So I think they were the first of the health plans to go. And was Paul Cusero the, because he is a wacko, yeah, no, Paul like, was, in all the great ways. The like, first Humana person to call us up was Paul Cusero. Yeah. Paul was the person who, you know, I think was tasked to go and find people like us yeah. who are pushing the envelope. How do, another lesson learned, I think your point about find, you know, not wasting your time on folks who don't get it is a great point. And it links to your point about persistence, because you gotta be persistent in order to find the wacko, or yeah. the progressive thinker, let's yeah. say, because these people are geniuses. How do you take then the model that's designed with the progressive, you know, forward-looking person and actually then scale it to ordinary people in the world, <laughs> ordinary <laughs> customers? So I think the problem with scaling healthcare is it's not like scaling Starbucks. So Starbucks is a model, you make the coffee is a coffee, and the green furniture is green furniture, and you largely can stamp the same thing out. Healthcare is very local. Yep. So it really is complexity there. You have to figure out what are the things that have to be the same, and you should do everywhere because it makes sense to do at scale, but what really can and should be different in each place because that is what it is. 
right? And I think many people in healthcare fail by being on both sides of that continuum. They either try and stamp the same thing out and they fail in many places, or they it's chaos and they just sort of let people do whatever they want and then they fail that way. So I think some way the story of Iora is really trying to figure out how we build a scalable model. Do you think you're there yet? I think we're really getting there. I think we've been really successful. We have practices serving all sorts of different populations from, you know, casino workers, as you mentioned, in Las Vegas and Atlantic City we've served before, to seniors in Seattle and Phoenix, to college employees, to... In Hanover, right? In Hanover, right. And they all work really well. They're different, but they're the same. So if you've been to multiple practices, you you know their IRA practices because they're things that are similar, but you also can tell that they're, they're different. Can we get your read on capitated primary care as a business? There's a lot of different models, yeah. right? There's Iora's different from Chen, and Chen is different from Village MD, and Village MD is different from- Oak Street. Oak Street, and Oak Street's different Q-Lions from Landmark, and, and Landmark, you go down the yeah. line, like, are these gonna converge? Are they each one gonna be able to carve out their own segment? How do you see capitated primary care evolving under Trump care and even beyond what's happening in the healthcare policy space right now. Yeah, so it's funny. In healthcare, we somehow think that one size fits all. So no other industry. So you ask, what's the best department store? Well, that's a stupid question. You know, there's a segment of the population for whom Nordstrom's is the right place to go shop. There's a segment for JCPenney, and there's a segment that goes to Target. And that is what it is, right? So I think we need to get so much more sophisticated in targeting populations. And one of the things we do, right? So what typical primary care does is they just sit up a shingle and they say, okay, any schmo who walk in, I'll do all things to all people. No other business does that. What most people say is, here's a segment of the population. This is who I want to serve. Let's get contracts. Let's put in place. Let's put in services. So one medical in us. Again, they're a great business. Tom Lee's a good friend. They serve a very different segment than we serve, yeah. right? So their segment is sort of yuppie types in urban areas in San Francisco and Boston and New York. And they're built for that. And they're tuned for that. We are increasingly focused on seniors and older, more chronically ill folks. And it's just a very different population. I think our patients would do poorly in one medical, their right. patients would do poorly in, in our practice, which is not designed for. Now, so so every practice has to be tailored to the population that it's serving. Yep. Right, your Atlantic City practice has to be totally different than your Dartmouth, Absolutely. your Hanover, New Hampshire yep. practice, right? So again, I think the key is uh, to think about what needs to be the same, what needs to be different. So there's a core infrastructure that's below the line that ought to be scaled like hell. Right, so the IT and some of the analytics and the HR and the finance and all of that. But you then need to make sure that the end units are actually focused on particular populations so they can optimize for that, Mm. right? I think there's room for a ton of us. So basically all of the companies you mentioned are better than typical primary care by far. And I think there's room for all of us in various places and various niches that could go Do you guys have a point of view yet on the potential for Medicaid block grants and how that changes? Will you stay in the Medicare space or do you see ultimately trying to translate your services into Medicare? I mean, you obviously know Q Lions up in Seattle and they tried to do DPC to the Medicaid population and there were many levels of challenges there. But do you see there being a fully capitated model of primary care for Medicaid populations? We would love to. And we certainly have several practices that serve would-be Medicaid population. So we have, again, some of these practices with the casino workers, if yeah. if they didn't have a strong union, they would all be on Medicaid, right? right? Because they are, they're low income, et cetera. We have a practice with a company called Grameen America in Jackson Heights, Queens, for largely undocumented women. We take care of duels and balls. So we have a number of practices focused on those. We have not yet had a straight Medicaid yep. contract for really, I think, uh, several reasons. So one is that typically Medicaid 
plans don't pay enough. So they say, well, we're used to paying $13 PMPM for primary care. Well, look at where that's getting you, right? It's getting you... Really says, sick people. Really sick, yeah, for really sick people. So you just can't make the economics work. Second one is churn. Right, so the problem with a lot of Medicaid populations is they churn on and off They're Medicaid. Transient, yeah. They're transient. The whole point of high-impact relationship-based care is you make investments in people up front. It doesn't pay off in the same year, right? It pays off later. If they're going to churn off, you just made the investment. Now they're no longer on your books. That sort of doesn't work. Managed care and Medicaid mostly let people cycle on and off every month. Absolutely crazy. I understand why they, they want patient choice, but let people commit. There's no way of having yeah. a business. I think Q-Lines's big problem is 80% of people churned off. <laughs> That's not a winnable game. Yeah. The final problem with Medicaid, which I think is a stupid structural problem, is related, is that even if you can keep the people, the problem is the return, you make an investment this year on these people. The return isn't this year. The return is maybe a year or two from now. And Medicaid programs in general have to zero the books out each year. So they have sort of no way of actually budgeting. So I want to make an investment this year and pay it back two years from now. Well, that's sort of stupid, right? It's sort of, because they do yearly budgets. Yeah. And so there are a bunch of structural reasons why we've not been able to work with Medicaid plans. I would love to. I think the uncertainty in what's happening in Medicaid now also certainly does not make it a market we're running into. <laughs> but I would like to hope that once it stabilizes, we can figure out a way to do it. We would love to. Rashika, Dave, you know, obviously, you guys are at one of the most interesting companies and one of the most interesting spaces in healthcare, which is the value-based movement, right? I mean, there's been some successes. There's been a lot of failures too, right? I'm curious, where do you think we are? And how would you rate you know, the value-based movement now that we're kind of eight to 10 years into it, at least from government policy perspective? It feels like we're at a little bit of a tipping point. So what you're starting to see out of Paul Ryan's plan and some of these other plans is what they're proposing for CMS for straight Medicare looks a lot like Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage is performing really well. The outcomes are good, costs are lower, and markets where there's a high Medicare Advantage penetration, you're actually seeing the benefit to the entire Medicare population because doctors are just changing the way that they're practicing. So it's really nice to see. And I think if CMS can lead the way with some new value-based programs to Rashika's earlier point, I think that's actually going to open up the floodgates. Do you look at Medicare Advantage as a value-based? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, for us, yeah. I mean, the thing with our model on the DPC side is we were creating a ton of value. So we're reducing hospitalizations by 40% in every geography, every population that we've ever been in, but we're not able to capture any of that value. With Medicare Advantage, we're able to do so. It's able to drive better quality outcomes, reduce costs all over the place. So it's a great contracting mechanism for us, and it really aligns the provider and the plan incentives are obviously with the patients. Because those Medicare Advantage plans are, are basically capitating you guys as Correct. the primary care provider. Yeah, so the big transition we made, I think, from where our roots were, which were essentially our business model was, as you said, a DPC model, right? Where we would get paid a fixed amount per patient. Direct primary care. Yeah, yeah, so we started in the retail space way back in our renaissance practice where patients would pay us 40, 50, 60 bucks a month. Then we progressed to having the employer, Boeing Company, the Casino Workers in Atlantic City, Dartmouth College, would pay us a fixed amount a month. By the way, double typical primary care. Primary care is typically 5% of healthcare spend, which is stupid. So what we convinced them of is pay us double it. So roughly 10%. And then, by the way, all the savings, we're generating, they're paying five extra percentage points for primary care, we're saving 20 percentage points on total cost. Because they of get the last hospitalization. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that was it. But again, we don't get to harvest that very much. And then really, the big transition was again, moving to Medicare Advantage. We had some practice on the exchange where we moved to risk contracts, where we get paid a sort of primary care cap, but we also get to share in that savings. 
all the way up to what we call sort of global risk, where we actually, it's all our money, where the health plans have said, great, we'll take a percentage off the top, but the rest of it's your money. So if you can actually generate better economics, you know, contingent on good quality, then it's yours because... And if you don't do well, you eat it too, right? Yep. Works both ways. No one's, no one's going to give it to you one way. So, Is there any one lever in managing that risk pool, technology, clinical model, you know, organization, like when you think about the levers that you guys have pushed and pulled to be successful within that cap rate, does one stand out? Well, the answer is yes, it's all of them, right? So that's the insight is if you want to be successful, you need to hire the right teams, have them be doing the right thing, using the right IT platforms, having the right culture, right? So this is what's really hard. You asked about what's your assessment of, of you know, value-based cares. You're, you're a little negative because you think it's built on the transactional model. It I is. Think. So thinking you can do it with the platform you have now is fooling yourself, right? This platform was built to optimize volume, right? Say it for it is. It's generating more visits, more MRIs, more hospital beds. Thinking you can take that platform, the rewards people get, the way they get bonus, the IT systems so they use. Epic, Cerner, Athena, that are all classic all, EMRs that yeah. do revenue fee-for-service revenue cycle. No, that's so, great. They, they do really well on the thing they were built to do thinking you can use those to do what we're doing is just sort of fooling yourself. It was why we, and almost every one of the companies you just mentioned who seriously said, we want to start doing value-based care, so Q-Lions, us, One Medical, all of us, ChenMed, we all made the same decision independently. Build is we technology. have to build our own technology. Yeah. We cannot use, and we all looked at everything on the market. I remember having a conversation with you about this. And yeah. we, and would have been great if we could have used something because we have no desire to do that. But so we do you, to. is there mar just as investors and company creators? Is there still a market today for building an EMR that's truly oriented towards value-based, team-based, value-based care? Yeah. So the problem with that is it's a bit of skating where the puck's going to be, right? So if one has enough patience and faith, I think there will be a huge market. Yeah. At the moment, the market for this is tiny. It's like right. eight companies. Right. Yeah, it's us, and we, we just mentioned <laughs> them all, yeah. right? Because the problem with all the existing health systems, despite the rhetoric of doing value-based care, they're doing both. So they need systems, and they do it both in the same place. They're not segmenting it, right? So they need systems that can both do the transactions and do what we're doing. And, and you think that's bound to fail? Because I think it's bound to fail. I think it's, they're not a little different. They are completely so, so different. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but a lot of the value-based movement besides those eight companies, is built on the existing rails and the existing infrastructure. And there's a lot of hope for value-based care, put aside the political issues. You're kind of skeptical that it's actually going to work. So, so, so I think eventually maybe people will figure out that, okay, we've tried the easy way. Easy way doesn't work. Well, actually, the real easy way, what most people are doing, and they don't even change how they deliver care, right? So they take these risk-based contracts and they don't change it. If you don't change what you do, of course you're not going to change what you get, right? So I think the first step is you have to say, we're going to actually have to change how people practice. And so here's the other problem, is not everyone wants to practice this way, right? So we started by doing this sort of thing. You go to 10 doctors, we want to practice in a value-based way and you know, email patients and you know, do all the things we do. And some of them say, yes, exactly why I went into medicine, please. But a bunch of people say, what's wrong with the way I'm doing now? I like seeing people in visits, and I don't like health coaches and any of that stuff. This is a really interesting point. It always comes down to the people, as you said. From the doctor's perspective, what do they have to do? Are they working more when it comes to value-based? I mean, are your people working more? They're working on the weekends, emailing their patients, checking reports, you know, because the regular doctor, the joke is fee-for-service. I go do a bunch of procedures, and then I go play golf. 
<laughs> are your people still playing golf, or are they do they, they like swamped with work? So the primary care doctors, unfortunately, don't play very much yeah, golf. Yeah, that's true. Right? <laughs> those are the orthopedists and the dermatologists <laughs> who play golf. Uh, you know, the job of the doctor in an Iora or you know, fill in the blank, yep. Chen, et cetera, practice is actually fundamentally different than the job of a doctor in a typical practice, right? A primary care doctor. So the job of a typical primary care doctor is I walk in the door in the morning, I have 38 patients booked, they come in, I make the best decision, I tell them what to do, and I document a code I bill, and turn my brain off to go to the next patient, right? The job of our docs, I think, is more system architect. The job of our docs is I have a population of people, I know who they are, they are my problem. How do I improve their health? and keep them out of trouble, and do whatever it takes. Now, some of that is me seeing them one-on-one, -on -one, but some of it is me teaching health coaches, some of it me running a group, some of it might be going and seeing them in the hospital, some of it maybe me looking at my IT system and doing all of that, right? So it's a, just a fundamentally different job. I think they don't work harder, they work smarter, right? The other thing we did, again, I think the problem with a lot of the value-based care is they ask people to do all the things they did before and add on top of it running a group and doing mm -hmm. email. Like, of course that doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? So we've had to take away stuff. So we're not doing the billing and the, you know, a lot of the other crud. You know, we have these health coaches to unload a bunch of stuff, but we just don't do it because we think it's low value. And so you've got to take stuff away, so then you allow people time to do the other you stuff. You and I may have talked about this before, Rashika, in our conversations, but in a fee-for-service or in the old healthcare system, and I am one of these, so I can use this phrase, I guess, somewhat lovingly, but the primary care doc and the psychiatrists, the behavioral health specialists were redheaded stepchildren. <laughs> you know, they were not the valued professions when you went to medical schools. Yeah. People didn't, it was a special person that wanted to go be a psychiatrist or, or be a primary care doc. And in a value-based environment where the primary care doc turns to be the quarterback and the coordinator of, and the actual influencers of whether they go see the high price specialist, and the psychiatrist is dealing with all the comorbid conditions they've become in many ways the most valuable players in a value-based environment. Absolutely right. So part of what we've done is completely flipped the power pyramid, yeah. right? So in the old days, you go to you know, big hospitals, so you use Mass General to pick on them just because they happen you can, to be here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, when they build a brand new tower, guess who gets in the brand new tower? The cardiologist. The orthopedist and the cardiologist. And guess who's stuck in the basement? The primary care docs, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's kind no, of there's never been a $500 million primary care clinic that has been <laughs> fundraised for, right? <laughs> right. There's exactly. plenty for orthopedics Absolutely, and cardiologists. Guess yeah. that's how that works. Now, for the new world, when we do Medicare Advantage and all the money's flowing through primary care, they work for us. They're commodities, right? We yeah. use them as suppliers. All of a sudden, things change dramatically in this new world. And about the mental health stuff is, is there really friction in the relationship. Rashika is not going to be the poster boy for the American Orthopedic Association <laughs> like Man of the Year award. <laughs> so the good ones will do fine, right? Because we need orthopedists. So the ones who are practice well and value based, guess who we're going to work with? Yeah, yeah, totally. And we will funnel our stuff to. And the people who don't, well, have you figured out the analytics platform to know which specialists to steer to? That you know, based on the type of patient or the type of condition or the ethnicity or the gender or the age, and you, you know that you're on a capitated contract and you do have to send someone to an orthopedist, and you realize that that doctor is gonna do the right thing and is not gonna operate on their back just because they have back pain. Have you started figuring out a lot of the intelligence around routing and? Yeah, no, absolutely. We're not perfect at it, but we're, A, we do it. Yeah. I think what's important is it's two steps. The first is to use the data. So we work with a bunch of cool companies. We have a built-in sort of internal capability to generate what we call good folks lists. Yeah. Right, and these are the people who we think are the right people based on data to send to. But then the second point is we then go meet with them. 
right? And we say, look, here's what we're trying to do, and here's how we want to work, and here's sort of a set of rules that we'd like. This is how we behave. You're not going to send someone to someone else without telling me. You're going to respond to me with a certain yeah. time. Any big decision we're going to collaborate on. And if that's true, then we're going to work together and live happily ever after. And if not, you'll never see one of my patients again. Mm -hmm. Because the trust comes through us, we can actually do that. So we build what we call sort of de facto narrow networks beyond us. Right? Yep. Now, again, when a health plan tries to build a narrow network, which a lot of them are trying to do, all hell breaks out. Right? Because people file lawsuits and there are marches in the street. But when we do it, no one knows what's happening. Yeah, right. Rishik, I have one last question. Let's just imagine five, ten years from now, Iora is a public company. You've been running a public company <laughs> as a CEO for a bunch of years, or, or maybe it's a successful exit. I mean, you're clearly a deep thinker, a really smart guy who cares about our system, our healthcare system. We're lucky we have guys like you doing this stuff. What's next for you? What's the next system change that you would take on? You know, if you ask, like, what's the thing that's most like healthcare that most needs change, I would think it's education. Hmm. And I think there are lots of so things. So you go to a different industry. I think mean, it'd be interesting, having gotten tired of healthcare. But I think there are a lot of analogs to education. Some I care, but I have three kids yeah. who you see going through it. I mean, education, like healthcare, is stuck in a 1800s production model where you go to class, you're lockstep. You know, I think the productivity is not improved in education, like in healthcare, over the last 100 years. It's one of the only other things that, about to pay college tuition for a child, you know, tuition's going up oh, way out faster. It's outrageous. It like right? makes, it it's makes also, healthcare look cheap. It's also my, my, my third grade daughter just did a month and a half long study of the Greek gods, right? And I think when I was in third grade, I did a month, month and, and a half, half study, study of the Greek gods. <laughs> no, and do you know how much I use that study today <laughs> in terms of like what it, not? But I don't think it's changed that much. No, and you know what's interesting? I mean, it's a whole lot of stuff. When we think about what's the closest analog company to what we do, we actually don't look in healthcare. We actually look elsewhere. So I think uh, charter schools is what we're doing, right? We're building sort of charter schools. Yeah. We engender the same sort of, you know, feelings about charter schools than people do. We're not, you know, concierge practices are private schools, right? You pay money, it's a valid system, but the point of, no one pays to come, in general, to come to our practices, right? And, and the point of charter schools is not just to have better, you know, education for the kids going, but sort of kick the public schools behind a little bit, get better, and that's what we sort of do with the rest of the healthcare yeah. system. And I think there are a few, you know, KIPP is one of our hero organizations, people who have, for 20 years, been building sort of scalable yeah. models, and there are a lot of analogs. So again, if you ask what's next, I think education. I was talking to someone recently that my kids, the kids of this generation, I think will retain substantially more about the American Revolution than we all did because of Hamilton. Yes. <laughs> because of the lyrics and the music, yep. and they all know, so many of these kids are listening to that soundtrack, and they really know, like, who an Alexander Hamilton was and what his banking system was about. And I think for a lot of people who studied it in the traditional manner, it, you know, unless you wanted to work at Goldman Sachs and went in one ear and out the other a little yeah. bit, you know, and I just think new teaching methods like new care delivery methods. Absolutely. Is, it's just silly that we think the same model that worked 150 years ago is the same model that we should right, be doing the now. agrarian model. Yeah, right, it just seems school. not. So, so I think that's the next, <laughs> next thing. Love it. The best, Rashika, huge mind, you know, <laughs> great talent, literally changing the healthcare. Maybe next education. Thanks for spending time with us, Rashika, Dave. Appreciate thank it. you. Sure. Yeah, Dave, thank you as well. As I've said in my interaction with you, I've watched the business. It's been amazing to watch what you guys have done and continued success. Great. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to A Healthy Dose. 
Please subscribe through iTunes. And if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, email the guys at steve at bvp.com or trevor at oxyandpartners.com. We do okay.